Episode 19, Julius Caesar and the End of the Roman Republic. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 19, Julius Caesar and the End of the Roman Republic. Okay, here's an interesting historical tidbit. No one is quite sure where the name Caesar comes from. Despite Caesar being one of the most famous names of all time, no one knows exactly where it originated. Hold that thought. We're about to look at one of the most interesting, most famous people in all of history, Julius Caesar. If you had to choose the five most famous people of all time, Caesar might make that list. He's that famous. Why is he interesting? Well, look at his resume. Conquered Gaul, became part of the triumvirate that ruled Rome. He wrote books and poems. He won lots of amazing battles, invaded Britain, conquered Egypt, had an affair and a child with Cleopatra, took over the Roman Republic, adopted his nephew, who later became the first emperor. He was named dictator for life, and then he was killed on the Senate floor by his own friends. He later had a play written for him by a guy named Shakespeare. He was an amazing general, but he also basically destroyed the Roman Republic, and he set the stage for the Roman Empire. But he was a good dictator as dictators go. Pretty good resume. What have you done today? I went to Kroger and I bought dog food, so there's that. As a side note, before we talk about Caesar, it's worth mentioning that we are getting to a point in history where history is really pretty well recorded. And there's a lot of those records that have survived, including Caesar's own works. Caesar, by the way, is particularly noted for his good, clear Latin writing. In fact, many intro Latin courses, even as far back as the early Middle Ages, used Caesar's Gallic War, or Bello Gallica, for teaching Latin. Omnis Gallia est divisa in tres partes. These are the opening lines of Bello Gallico, and this was often the first Latin that students learned. It means all of Gaul is divided into three parts. In addition to Caesar's own writing, there are lots of other Roman historians in this time period, including Livy, Tacitus, Josephus, and others. The Romans were really proud of their history, and so a lot of it was written down. They also had a tendency to record everything, and since it was Rome, a lot of those records were passed down through the ages. So at this point in history, particularly in the Western world, we have a pretty clear, concise record of what happened when and even why. Plus, we often have multiple sources, which helps a lot in clarifying what really went on. This lasts until the fall of Rome, almost 500 years later. After the fall of Rome, there's a big, big drop-off in the preserved historical record. That's why the period after the fall of Rome is known as the Dark Ages. It wasn't any more dark or terrible, it's just that there's a lot less stuff written at that time period compared to the Roman times. So, Caesar. His full name was Gaius Julius Caesar. He came from an old patrician family, the Julii. The Julii claimed to be descended from Aeneas and the goddess Venus. Historians have four different theories about where this nickname Caesar came from, all leaning on slightly different Latin root words. He might have had an ancestor who was born from Caesarean section. See the similarity there? Or it might have had to do with him having a thick head of hair, or possibly having gray eyes, or even possibly because he killed an elephant during the Punic Wars. All are possible, but no one knows for sure. That's kind of funny to me because 
the emperors after him are all known as Caesar. Even in the Bible, we have the phrase, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, spoken by Jesus himself. More on him soon. But Jesus was talking about Caesar Augustus, not Julius Caesar. And Caesar becomes the root of the German word Kaiser and the Russian word Tsar. So rulers seem to be called Caesar, but no one knows where the word came from. But Gaius Julius Caesar made it popular. Gaius Julius Caesar was born on the 12th of July, 100 BC. There's an irony there. Since I mentioned the date, I need to mention that it's really Julius Caesar's fault that we have BC and AD. Yes, I know BC means before Christ, not before Caesar, but it was Caesar who reformed the Roman calendar, which is the base of the calendar we use today. In 46 BC, he reformed the calendar and he started a new calendar based on the date of him assuming power. And this was the default calendar until it was reformed by the popes later on. The popes later also changed the start date of the calendar from when Julius Caesar assumed power to when Jesus was born. They were wrong about the exact date. More on that next episode. But according to our current Gregorian calendar, Caesar was born on the 12th of July, 100 BC. His family was patrician, but they were no longer one of the really wealthy families. Julius was about to change that. He jumped headfirst into the cursus honorum, and he advanced quickly. He was a talented public speaker and became very popular in Rome. Caesar was married to Cinna's daughter, Cornelia. You remember Cinna? He and Marius terrorized Rome until Sulla threw them out and took over. When Sulla took over, Caesar who was seen as a supporter of Marius and Senna, Caesar quickly left the city and he went to serve in the legions in Asia where he earned distinction in battle. In 78 BC, Sulla died and Caesar thought it was safe to return to Rome. On the way back, he was captured by pirates who told him they were demanding 20 talents of silver for his ransom. Caesar was furious and he told them that they needed to be demanding at least 50 talents of silver for him. He also told them that he would return and crucify them. Later, when he was dictator, he captured those same pirates, and in a show of leniency, he had their throats cut rather than having them crucified. So kind. In 63 BC, he ran for the office of Pontifex Maximus. That's the high priest of the Roman religious services. It's a very prestigious post in ancient Rome. He spent so much money campaigning to be the Pontifex Maximus, that is basically buying votes, that he was deeply in debt. And so the next year, he got himself appointed to be the governor of Spain. As the governor, he could make a lot of money. But before he left for Spain, his creditors seized all of his luggage, thinking that he was running away from them. Well, he probably was. But Crassus, who was by this time a very wealthy man, bailed him out and guaranteed his debt. So Caesar sailed to Spain. He served well in Spain, he made a lot of money, and after two years, he returned to Rome. In 59 BC, he was elected consul. The first thing he did was to reconcile Crassus and Pompey, who were feuding. The three of them essentially ruled Rome for the next 10 years in what became known as the First Triumvirate. As part of the wheeling and dealing to make this happen, Caesar offered his daughter Julia in marriage to Pompey. So, Pompey was married to Caesar's daughter, Caesar was married to Cinna's daughter. Marius had been married to Caesar's aunt. Caesar's sister, Julia, had a granddaughter who eventually married Mark Anthony. And that's who gives Caesar's funeral address in Shakespeare's play. And then Caesar himself remarries 
after Sinna's daughter died, and he married one of Sulla's granddaughters. This sounds like the recipe for an amazing soap opera. These people are all related. But by marrying each other's daughters, Caesar, Crassus, and Pompey were able to create a tentative alliance, and together they basically ruled Rome. Caesar provided the popularity and the political prowess to keep it all together. As consul, Caesar proposed a law redistributing public land to the poor. Much of this public land was already occupied by the patricians who had just kind of annexed land into their already large estates. So the patricians, of course, opposed this law, but with Crassus and Pompey's support, the law was passed, which made Caesar even more popular, except with the Senate and the patricians. After his year as consul, Caesar again pulled some strings and he had himself appointed to be the governor of Gaul, which put four legions under his direct command. He left for Gaul in 58 BC and he began conquering Gallic tribe after Gallic tribe, conquering most of what is now France. He conquered most of France, including the lands just across from the island of Britain, and he made plans to come back later and invade there too. In 55 BC, two Germanic tribes invaded the east side of Roman Gallic territory, and Caesar defeated them by having his engineers build a massive wooden bridge across the Rhine. You, you have to Google this because it's such a feat of engineering. The Rhine is a really big river, and they built this bridge in less than two weeks. Caesar then marched across the Rhine with a couple of legions, outflanked and defeated the surprised Germans, and then marched back across and destroyed the bridge. Caesar was known for this sort of bold stroke and for these huge feats of engineering. Soon, Caesar had conquered and subdued all of Gaul. As he was doing this, he was constantly writing down his memoirs and sending frequent reports of all his victories back to Rome, where he was becoming even more popular. The next year, in 54 BC, Caesar invaded Britain, establishing a Roman presence there that would last for several hundred years and would have a very direct influence on Western history. He conquered a few tribes, and he made alliances with a few more, but the tribes of Britain were very resistant. Wait till the Romans get to the Scots. While he was in Britain, though, his daughter, Julia, who was Pompey's wife, died in childbirth. This began the fracturing of the triumvirate. The very next year, in 53 BC, Crassus died, leaving Caesar and Pompey as rivals. Caesar controlled Gaul. Pompey controlled the area around Greece and Egypt. Caesar had more popular support in Rome, but Pompey had the support of the Senate. They both had their own armies, and so things were shaping up to be a sort of dangerous civil war. The Senate ordered both men to leave their legions and disarm, but neither would do it without the other one agreeing. In 49 BC, Caesar sent a proposal to the Senate that both he and Pompey would disarm, but the proposal included protections for Caesar against potential prosecution. The Senate refused to even read it, and many of Caesar's supporters, including several tribunes, were driven out of Rome by force by Pompey's supporters. Then the Senate declared Caesar, but not Pompey, an enemy of the state, and recalled him from service in Gaul to face charges. Now, since this had happened while his supporters were out of Rome, Caesar refused to acknowledge the authority of the order, and instead he got his legions together and he marched towards Rome. The northern border of Roman territory in Italy is called the Rubicon River. 
and it was forbidden for Caesar to bring his legions across this river into Italian territory. Caesar crossed the Rubicon with one legion, and he supposedly said, let the die be cast. He was going to take his chances, so he metaphorically rolled the dice and went for it. Pompey left for Illyria, which is to the east, between Italy and Greece, where he had loyal legions. Caesar easily defeated Pompey's lieutenants in Italy, and then he turned not to Rome, but he turned east to march to Illyria. In 48 BC, Caesar and his legions fought their way out of a near defeat at Dyrrhachium. Then in August of 48, Caesar met Pompey at the Battle of Pharsalus in Greece. Pompey outnumbered Caesar almost two to one, and he had almost three times as many cavalry troops. Plus, he held the better ground. It's over, Caesar! I have the high ground! But Pompey's troops were new and untested. Caesar had with him about 20,000 soldiers, all of them well-trained veterans from the Gallic Wars. Plus, they were all deeply loyal to Caesar. His men loved him. In the battle, Caesar thinned out his lines to match the size of Pompey's force. Both sides put their cavalry to the south, which was Caesar's right flank. Behind his cavalry, though, Caesar hid some of his best foot soldiers. Despite being outnumbered three to one, Caesar's cavalry drove off the less experienced cavalry of Pompey, and then the hidden troops swept around Pompey's left flank. Seeing that his troops were scattering and being beaten, Pompey left the field and he went back to his camp. He packed up his gold and he left with some of his advisors, leaving his army in the field where they were soundly defeated. Pompey eventually made his way to Egypt. Caesar defeated the army and took over Pompey's camp, and then he very graciously welcomed all of Pompey's supporters, forgiving all of those who came to him asking for mercy, both there on the field and again later in Rome. And then he reinstated them into their positions. Now this was a big change. All of the previous Roman conquerors had tended to massacre their enemies, but Caesar was a much better politician than that. After securing control of the battlefield, he went back to Rome and he had himself named dictator. That was in 48 BC. Then Caesar went back after Pompey. Caesar arrived in Alexandria, Egypt in October of 48 BC. When he arrived, he was presented with Pompey's head. He had been murdered there in Egypt by people who were trying to win Caesar's favor. Instead of being pleased, Caesar reportedly cried. And then he had Pompey's assassins killed. But in Egypt, there was drama too. There was a battle for the crown going on in Egypt between the child Pharaoh and his older sister, who you might have heard of. Her name was Cleopatra. Yes, that Cleopatra. Caesar, of course, sided with Cleopatra. And then together they defeated the army of the young Pharaoh. And then Caesar had her named the ruler of Egypt. Then they went on a long, romantic cruise up the Nile together. Caesar and Cleopatra had a thing going on there, apparently, and eventually she would have his son, who was named Caesarian. They never formally married, but she came back with him to Rome and stayed there a while. Apparently, she visited Rome several times during Caesar's dictatorship, always staying in his villa outside of Rome. We'll come back to Cleopatra in the next episode, too, because after Caesar... She ends up having another passionate relationship with Mark Anthony, and together they go to war against Caesar's grand nephew, who Caesar had also named as his heir.
Caesar returned from Egypt to Rome, and he was greeted with massive popular acclaim and a huge triumph. The people loved him, and though the Senate did not love him, they tolerated him partly because he controlled the armies and partly because he was actually a good ruler. So, here's the tension with Caesar's time as a dictator. It was a huge violation of Roman law, Roman values, and Roman traditions. But it worked, so people put up with it for a while. For the first time in a hundred years, Rome itself was at peace, because Caesar did a good job of balancing the needs of the various factions, and he was just and fair in the laws that he wrote. He made reforms that needed to be made. Everyone was relieved at the peace, and they could see that Caesar was doing a good job of ruling, even though there were many who didn't like the idea of a dictator staying in power. But it worked because Caesar was good at it. We see here the enduring tension between liberty and order that has often plagued the West. The problem of liberty is that it creates a good deal of competition and chaos as different groups strive to expand their influence and their piece of the pie at the expense of others. At times, this can boil over into civil war, or the strong taking advantage of the weak, like, for example, the robber barons of the 1800s and today. At times like that, people will begin to clamor for order, and they're willing to give up liberties in order to have some peace. But as Benjamin Franklin said, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. In other words, liberty, in the end, is more important than safety. It's short-sighted to look out for just safety if it means giving up real liberties. Here's why I agree with this. Governments are supposed to protect both liberty and the safety of the people. One of the government's jobs is to provide some kind of safety for its people against internal and external threats. This is especially true if one sees the government as being of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's actually the people, through the government, defending themselves. But if the people give up and cede their responsibility for their own safety, hand it over completely to the government, and they're willing to sacrifice some of their own liberties to get that safety, well, the government's never going to give those liberties back. Just like the Roman government, Many of the Western governments, including the United States, have constitutions that are written to preserve the liberty of the people and prevent the government or any one person from taking the liberties of the people away. The United States Bill of Rights is exactly this. It's designed to protect us from our own government. But governments don't really want to preserve the liberties of the people. Governments sort of want to expand their own powers and become stronger and more powerful. It's the, just the nature of a government. It wants to expand itself. We saw this often in the emergency powers that many governments misused during the pandemic. Another quote that applies here is, If you give your government emergency powers, the government will keep inventing emergencies to keep using those powers. We've seen this in several places in U.S. history. Lincoln in the North used emergency powers during the U.S. Civil War, and after the war, the Union was never the same. Part of the genius of the American Constitution was that the states were originally sovereign over their own territory, and the federal government only had control over interstate commerce. 
After the Civil War, though, that incredibly important check and balance was just gone. It was ignored. Also, the first income tax at the federal level was passed during the Civil War. This was somehow added to the Constitution later in the form of the 16th Amendment, which happened in 1913. I seriously do not know what the people of the United States, and especially the state legislatures, were thinking in 1913 when they let this get added to the Constitution. This was such an abandonment and a submission of states' rights and sovereignties. It shows that by 1913, many people weren't seeing state sovereignty as an important check or balance anymore. The checks and balances were further eroded during the Great Depression and World War II as the federal government took more and more control over aspects of American life and the American economy. The argument can be made, of course, that this was necessary in those situations, but once those situations were over, did the government reduce its influence or relinquish that control? No, of course not. We can see similar situations in many other Western countries as governments down the years have expanded, sucked up more money, and taken away more control from local governmental bodies in order to, let's see, combat fascism? No, no, now, now we're going to combat communism. No, let's combat poverty, combat the drug problem, combat terrorism, combat domestic terrorism, combat the pandemic, combat the Russians, combat the wombats combat this new threat that they've just invented. It goes on and on. As long as people are afraid of some external threat, they will miss the real threat, and that is their own government and the extremely wealthy people behind the scenes of that government. Keep the people afraid, and they'll give up liberty, and thus it will be easier to keep the people under control. People might even begin to clamor for a dictator, as long as that person will keep things under control. This was true in the Roman Republic as well. The patriarchs, in part, kept the plebeians in line by sending many of them off to fight in wars against the external enemies. This kept them from agitating in the streets of Rome. Julius Caesar becoming dictator is seen as the end of the Roman Republic, but the Roman Republic had been in deep trouble for a hundred years before that, going back to the Gracchi brothers in 133 BC. Caesar put an end to almost a hundred years of internal fighting, mostly between the patricians and the plebeians. But he also set the stage for the Roman Empire. Caesar's rule as dictator worked, and the people were kind of relieved because he brought peace, but it only worked really because he was actually a very good dictator. While he was dictator, he redid Rome's constitution. He further integrated the provinces as well as fighting off resistance in those provinces. He made all of the territories of Rome into a more single, cohesive unit. He also passed land reform laws, giving a lot of land to poor farmers and ex-soldiers. And he restructured the debt laws, which eliminated a lot of debt. As I mentioned before, he reformed the calendar. The Roman month of Quintilius was renamed July in his honor. That's the month he was born. The Julian calendar took effect on the first of January, 45 BC. Now, at the time, of course, they didn't call it 45 BC, right? They called it year one. Several other calendar reshufflings have gone on since then that set up our current set of years, which is currently 2022, as I record this. If we had stayed with the Julian calendar, though, we would be in March of 2047 right now. March, by the way, is named after the Roman god Mars. Well, 
As all of you who have read Shakespeare's play know, the good times for Julius Caesar didn't last. On March 15th, the Ides of March, 44 BC, Caesar was stabbed to death in the Senate's meeting house by a group of about 60 senators, including Brutus and Cassius, who had been his allies. There's a great deal of historical dispute about Caesar's last words. Some historians say that he said in Greek, and you, child? Others say that he said nothing, and one historian says that he said, why, this is violence, in Latin. My own guess is that he said, ow, but that doesn't make for as good a final scene, does it, right? Shakespeare's last words for Julius Caesar were, et tu, Brute, then fall, Caesar. This is possibly derived from the and you, child, that some historians reported. In any case, Caesar's death launches Rome into more civil wars, and the Roman Republic was no more. So why did the Roman Republic end? I think the main issue was that the patricians would not or could not acknowledge the very legitimate issues that were facing the plebeians. And so the plebeians had to resort to having a champion like Marius use the army to force reform. This set the stage for the unraveling of law and order and the rule of law and Roman tradition and values, and it set the stage for years of internal battling between the patricians and the plebeians. It also set the stage for an ambitious man like Caesar to step into the power vacuum that had occurred because no one really trusted the official government anymore. The official government wasn't looking out for the interests of the whole of Rome. The official government was merely a group of competing factions fighting against one another, and it had ceased to effectively govern. So the Roman Republic ended with Julius Caesar. It's hard to pin an exact date on the end of it, but it was somewhere between when Caesar crossed the Rubicon in 49 BC and when he was assassinated in 44 BC. If I had to pick a date, it would be 48 BC when Caesar was first appointed dictator after defeating Pompey. But Rome doesn't really become an empire right at that point either. That won't happen until next episode, where we will look at Julius Caesar's grandnephew and heir, Octavian, or, as he's later known, Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor.